We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the show where we talk about stories, those who create them, and why. Here with me today is... It's me, Ken. With a... We're resuming the Grand March. I think it was Duke something... Duke Gaspard Hightower, I just remembered. Yeah, wow. Look at you. <laughs> Having functional mind on a Friday night. This is a novelty. Okay, so the idea that we started with in the previous episode was to try to build our own adventure path, basically, which is a thing that they do in Pathfinder, which is a set of connected adventures that take your characters from level whatever to level a higher number. Right, okay. and I think your your intent was to build it partly for that system, but also the idea that the core functions, the, the core setting narrative itself could be lifted and performed elsewhere. So the idea is that we're working on an adventure path. Mm-hmm. And the idea in this particular episode was that I was going to draw some maps, which I did. Okay. okay. And then we were going to try to populate the maps and sort of place them within the context of the adventure. Right. So as I recall, the idea was that the players would start in Taldor, which is sort of Italy. Right. It's it's more contemporary-ish Italy. The empires of yore, there's... It's, it's probably closer to being like medieval Italy, but if they had actually had a unified government other okay. than the Pope. So I think we had talked about, if I remember the pacing of the... We, we had teased out like a five-act architecture. Here. Right. So the first act get, yeah, good. is the players being recruited by some history nerd to deliver his amazing uh, story of the ancestors of the bar- the local baron or duke to the duke. And, sure. you know, a, a present, basically, and also to try to get the duke to fund the scholar and, you know, all those things that cause people who are educated to try to get money from rich people, mm-hmm. as they have throughout history. Right? <laughs> and still do. Right. So the big reveal at the end of that one is going to be that one of the duke's ancestors was a bad dude which is this Duke Gaspard Hightower guy. And specifically in the context of Pathfinder, this bad guy is the Pathfinder version of a Death Knight, which essentially means he is a haunted suit of armor that will take over his descendants if they are dumb enough to put it on. Okay, so we, we are going with the haunted helmet. Yeah, we are absolutely... Well, haunted suit of armor. So, like, explicitly, right? Sure. In, in contrast to Dungeons & Dragons implementations... I think they're called Grave Knights. Hang on. Let me get sure. the best area entry open. Oh, right, because it's of the uh, the orc licensing, is it now? Well, yeah, they may even have renamed them because of that, if we're being honest. Solemn Knights of Yore. Right. Well, if if they do, it will be in the, you know, Turbo Revised best area out sometime next year. We're just going by what's around now. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. Regardless, it's it's the, you know, I am a dead warrior, and because I am a dead warrior, I can do dead warrior type of scary things. If you're a fan of, you know, Souls games, you have a pretty good idea what we're talking about here. Importantly, can he grimace? Uh, well, I would assume he can grimace. I'm not sure grimacing is like an essential qualifier for an ancient, you know, pseudo-Roman warrior, but let's assume yes. If he's undead, I think he should be able to grimace and terrify you. Entirely possible. 
Here we go. All right, we're opening things. Okay, now we have both of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Bestiary is open, and we can see that Grave Knight is, in fact, the name of the, of the type of monster. Okay, so the deal with Grave Knights in Pathfinder is that essentially the knight is not the body it is currently inhabiting, it is the haunted suit of armor that that body is wearing. Right, so what you're saying is really until they put the helmet on, they don't hear the voice in their head. Correct. And so our plot arc was going to be that the birthday party would be interrupted by some collateral relative, let's call them. Right. I think we had presumed the possibility, whether it is a player or just a character in the narrative, who is a want-to-be inheritor to the throne that has been exiled. Right. So I think the logical thing to do is write it as if it was a usurper and then try to provide some notes that say, hey, if one of your players wants to be dumb enough to put on a cursed suit of armor, if that would be fun for you. Do this. What is my background? I am cursed by my ancestors because of the clothes I wear. Right. And so the Grave Knight, having possessed this guy, is going to sure. flee to this ruined city because whether or not it's where he died, it's a place that he knows and was associated with. Right. So because it would have been, it would have either, it would have had to exist, have existed when he proceeded in his march, whether he died. Right. Yeah. Back during what is called the Second War of Expansion. So are you thinking this is a place he created or a place he conquered? Uh, he didn't conquer it. I think this is in very much the Roman style, a city that the Empire of Taldor built because they had to send a bunch of soldiers north and they needed somewhere to do it from. Right. So fortress becomes town, becomes city. Right. What has happened to it since is due to uh, ongoing hostility by druids within their borders and without, the place is ruined and flooded. Because it will be near a big old river that there is definitely a name for, which I will look up, at the north end of Taldor, running past that country that is now called Galt, uh, toward the Stolen Lands. Galt is the, the location, I think, we ended in Act 5, where they wanted to go try to ex exercise the regalia, let's call it, of its possessed spirits. Right. Ultimately, they're going to need to go even deeper north, or sure. somewhere, to get right. rid of the problem. I think we had presumed that... The primary choice of this arc is whether or not they decide to keep the armor or free the armor of the spirits within, and then whatever happens from there. Right. I think at some point you're going to be looking at a situation where your choice is, okay, but we could we could work with the Grave Knight, who's bad, or we could get rid of him. If I'm not mistaken, the actual path here is you turn one of your party members into a sheep and you let the Grave Knight possess the sheep member. Well, and then you reload your game uh, at exactly <laughs> six o'clock on the dot, and... <laughs> Cast prismatic spray on the sheep within the armor and hope <laughs> that the orange ray hits it. And I am so glad that idiotic solution exists because it provides continuity between the earlier games and this one. I mean, Larian games are great for just sort of people who try to break games by playing them. <laughs> so I understand. Yeah. Like that was basically the point of the two Divinity Original Sin games was what is the dumbest way I can solve this encounter? I'm going to do that, that. over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there, there's certainly something freeing. And also, I think communally, it, it reminds me more of tabletop because it's precisely the kind of thing you sitting there as someone running a game would hear your players jokingly suggest and then look at you and go, right, so we're doing that. I've been genuinely surprised, by the way, in our Sunday game, how many bad ideas you guys suggest but don't actually commit to i think it's because we have done that enough with you particularly to know where they go oh i see <laughs> all right so you get the idea 
So now I am trying to sketch out part of the flooded slash ruined abandoned city. All right. And apparently there's abandoned Roman cities like all over the place, mostly in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So this isn't even all that implausible. So what I'm hearing is a place that was effectively flushed out by angry druids who want, or nature priests, whatever you want to call them, who want no one else there. Right. Whoever is there either is irascible to begin with or no longer living. Uh, Mostly, but not exclusively, the second thing. So the people who are there are not people you want to be around, whether they are existing or whether they are living people or unliving. Right. So the encounter, the encounters I have drawn up definitely involve zero things that could be reasonably classified as people. Okay. With one, two notable exceptions. How long has the city been abandoned? Probably since the Second War of Expansion was, I'm going to go with, a real long time ago in the Pathfinder timeline. And I'm talking on the scale of thousands of years. Most of that time. Whatever has moved into this city has been here a while and other things have moved in since. Exactly. Wasn't it a chat with Jay or with the group chat where you were trying to figure out the names of the kind of priests who would be in the temple in the city? Oh, no, it's it, 100%. It's, so it should be because the place was a military base that there is also a big old military cemetery there. Right. right? And that's where we're going for the purposes of this adventure. Okay. So there's a much larger city that they could go into if they wanted to, but the cemetery is on the outskirts of. The cemetery, right. The cemetery is the part that they need to go to. So right. they can definitely go have a look around the rest of it, and it will probably be kind of a bummer. For reference, this, this, the cemetery was specifically where we had, the, I think, the two layers we were looking at. The, the more easily navigable and then the trap-laden one full of apathetic zombies and skeletons. Right. So the most important note, and those of you who, for whatever reason, bothered to listen to the last episode, will probably remember this, is that this cemetery, although it was originally a nice, consecrated, hallowed cemetery dedicated to Phrasma and endorsed by all of the gods of the dead and, you know, everything's cool, isn't now. Mm-hmm. Some some people who worship Xiphus have moved in. And some board, lo- board game-loving skeletons. Oh, you know, we have to add that board game to their collection. Yes. They need to upsell the players on it. Right. So... The skeletons, and probably at least one associated, like, boss monster type of person who's a cleric, right. are worshippers of Xiphus. Xiphus is the god of pointless, pointless death, and also, as far as I can tell from all of the graphics depicting him, Spirit Halloween. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in our Abomination Faults game, I have caused Jay to now be an oracle of Xiphus, because... It amused me and actually makes sense given the kind of things he tends to get up to in game. He earned it, I think is the phrase you're looking for. I, he's earned it over a period of many years now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I didn't like think had, it would be a stretch. <laughs> this sounds more like he had it coming than he earned it in the moment. It's a little of both. Okay. Jay is not very assertive during character creation, but it's not hard to figure out what will keep him entertained. No, that way. <laughs> the thing I find interesting about Dr. Clicklock is he's not hes not overly malicious in ways you expect. He's just a creepy little bugger. So he, he, <laughs> yes. He's a tiny little goblin oracle of Xiphus, which means he's getting messages from, like, the villain of the Scream movies, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, beamed into his brain from the afterlife, telling him to do things. And this is... <laughs> I'm curious. In the way we had laid out the cemetery previously, I think we were going to arrange for there to be a final duel. The, the commander, whoever was right. Wrong. So I think there should effectively be two bosses here. Right. You've got the one who's serious about making things work, which is the, the clergy one. 
And then you've got the one who's all about, oh, you survived the ridiculous death traps in board games? Fine, then fight me. I am here guarding this ancient armor of such and such and fight me. Right, exactly. And this guy has been conned, basically, by the skeletons and the cleric of Xythus into continuing to guard something that actually it is very important for him to guard, which is probably the rest of the Dread Knight's armor, okay? Are these all skeletons from the Legion, or are these ones that have been built and recruited since? I think it's probably a little of both. I remember our original concept is that some of these guys became undead to guard the place. Sure, out of dedication. But they've right. been here so long that maybe they're starting to slip a little in their, in their devotions. Long since have slipped. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like part of the, the cult of Xyphus emerged organically within the crew and then started to infect the rest of them as time passed. Well, my guess is that, the, that some of the skeletons, you know, slowly but shortly became awful over a period of centuries. <laughs> and then a cleric of Xyphus showed up and was like, hey, you guys should help me make this place into a horrible death trap to kill the living so that they die pointlessly for exploring this abandoned city where there's nothing to find anyway. And the skeletons were like, dude, yes. A purpose? Great. <laughs> we can work with that. <laughs> we have our calling. Right. That's what I think happened, more or less. Sure. And the commander guy, who is going to be a different sort of monster, he actually is still trying to do his job after thousands of years. And he thinks these other skeletons are loyal, and these other skeletons are going to do things like greet the players and be like, Hi guys, how are you? Welcome to this ancient cemetery. Hey, did you know that there's some really cool stuff over there? And just try to lead the players to their death. <laughs> I think... Partway through, you should have a skeleton in the booth offering to be a tour guide. At some point, I am just assuming, and this is going to require a certain amount of jamming finesse, right? Yeah. You need to get the players not to take these skeletons seriously, initially. <laughs> it's very right. important, okay? And so what I did when I drew the map is that I positioned the abandoned funerary temple where the, where the nihilist skeletons hang out, more or less right by where you would get off of your boat trying to come to this part of the city. Mm-hmm. You're going to go, oh, we'll go in there, and then you're going to meet the skeletons. Now, your job, as I recall, was to try to come up with exciting things to put into this dungeon beyond the Nihilist skeletons and the commander. We'll see how that goes as we continue talking about what is here. <laughs> I think there's some factors we've introduced since we last talked. The city itself is flooded. How much of that flooding persists in the graveyard, or does the graveyard have, or did it have systems prior to this to keep that from happening? So I think the graveyard complex was on a hill. Right, which is great. But the nature of the flooding is not, oh no, a wave. It's, oh my goodness, so much rain. Oh Lord, so much rain. Over a period probably of years. What that says to me is that while the graveyard is elevated and everything was built to withstand the vicissitudes of time, water has come in along with things that were in the water to places it shouldn't have been. Correct. So I made a list of creatures that might live in this vicinity. Is one, is one of them the gunpowder is? No, I did not add a gunpowder ooze to the list. <laughs> that didn't make any sense, despite the fact that gunpowder oozes are objectively just brilliant as an idea. Why shouldn't there be an ooze that just blows up when it touches you? <laughs> that is some designer's wish fulfillment punishment on a player. Right, so let's get this out of the way. Somebody at Paizo thinks that Will-O-The-Wisps are the best thing ever. This is a perfectly good environment for Will-O-The-Wisps. I don't think Will-O-The-Wisps are the best thing ever. I have not included any. I think there's only one location you could have Will of the Wisps. No, there are lots. It's 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 technically the right environment. Hear me out. Okay. I think they've got, I think that the laziest of the skeletons have a rec room. 
where they've set them up to eliminate it. Well, so it's decidedly possible, right, that whoever the that the cult of Xiphus, to whatever extent it exists here, includes Will of the Wisps, includes all sorts of terrible things. Sure. Provided that their main focus is on luring people to pointless deaths, Xiphus is a totally ecumenical god. I think the quirk here is that the horrors don't behave the way you expect them to, by and large, until the worst one does. I think it's more a matter... So what I did also in drawing this up, right, was I included a lot of hazards that are, if not totally unintelligent, not what you tend to think of as, like, a a rational actor, okay? So, like, I included a, a, a type of scary plant called a scythe tree. It's a tree. It doesn't have an evil plan. <laughs> it's just there to chop you up and feed you through. Right. If the skeletons point you at the tree and you get jacked up by the tree, the tree's pretty happy about it. But right. I, I think you, you're looking almost at what kinds of invasive flora and fauna, because you've had the druids there, too. Are they, right. Do the druids try to root out the undead, or are these two at a detente? So I don't think I think the druid's goal was basically to shut down Taldor's pathway through to the north. Right, plan succeeded. Right. So cuz in Taldor there's a place called the Verdurin Forest where there are a whole sure. lot of druids, okay? Mm-hmm. And this city would necessarily have been located somewhat north of it. Okay. The wars of expansion were basically Taldor trying to expand north, the druids were not on board with that. The, what you have here is the druids basically ending up in a situation of the old lady, lady who swallowed a fly, where they kept on escalating their evolutions of flora and fauna to do the job, right? Along with environmental hazards, right? And then the and undead now, move in. Yeah, nobody should go there. Right, is basically the result. You, you have the bored undead legion, as well as whatever has evolved from the druids' endeavors. Right. So another creature that I included was mud wretches, which are mud men, and mud wretches are earth elementals that basically are made from magic mud and are a bummer. I think it would be sensible too to have weird things like slimes and molds and other Absolutely. I haven't started trying to I don't think I'm done. Let me put it that way. I think I'm probably about 60-70% done. I'm done with the concept. I've got the basic plan, but the basic question when it comes to the city as well as the place you want you're expecting the players to go to most is where has the water gotten to? Where hasn't it and what's preventing it from getting there? Correct. The other thing that, of course, you have to bear in mind in any Dungeons & Dragons offshoot is what level are the characters. My expectation would be that, because this is the second adventure, the characters are arriving at third or maybe fourth level, which constrains your range of options a little. I know, but I'm going to throw this out there because this this is a thing I think sadistic skeletons would do. You have the whole arena, I think we situated at the end, where the boss commander skeleton wants his one-on-one duel. Right. With whoever is still in shape enough to deal Vitally with it. Vitally important. The, the, the commander skeleton wants honorable combat with right. somebody. However, there are probably old sluices and drainage components throughout this entire area to keep it dry that yes. could be used for other purposes. And I feel like some cadre of the of the Xyphus skeletons are not at all averse to flooding the arena if they get bored. Yes. <laughs> Let's not even like think about that stipulation. Absolutely, the skeletons are going to try to cheat in favor of the commander. Because even though they're horrible skeleton jerks, yeah, that's their boss. Well, and I think that's really the tension you're threading here is you lure the players in with this kind of lackadaisical approach, the apathy, the, yeah, whatever, you got through great for you. Hey, play a yeah, board game. Yeah, yeah, we're skeletons. You can put us oh, to rest, no. but then who would guard the graveyard? Our, <laughs> you caught our deception. The scythe tree didn't eat you. Oh, we're sober. Oh, oh no, I, I promise you that whenever the skeletons point the players at uh, anything dangerous, the next step in the skeleton's plan is to get out of Dodge and go somewhere else in the cemetery so that the players don't find them. Right. 
these skeletons are jerks. Like, I really cannot possibly make this clear enough. These are jerk skeletons. If you've seen The Last Unicorn, the drunk skeleton in The Last Unicorn does not have anything on these skeletons. Okay, you need a peg leg pirate cat somewhere in the city, then. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, another thing I was thinking is that the players will need a base of operations, or they will need a reason to leave the town at night. My guess would be either somewhere in the city itself, or somewhere the druids are willing to house them. Yes, if the druids are willing to help with this. And actually, a friendly druid NPC is not a crazy thing to back the players up. Well, in I think part of what we would we should add to this as we're flushing it out is what other populations or entities or groups have an interest in, th- in the goings-on of this region? Sure. So maybe there is a druid or druids, right, who goes, boy, the ancient druids really screwed up when they flooded this whole place. You guys are here to go digging for treasure in there? Great. Can you help me out with some stuff? Oh, here you go then. So I think this happens, you, you, try, you try to lay this out so it happens after the, the scythe trees. The druids should also have scythe trees in their grove. That should just be a thing. I think scythe trees are inherently evil. And druids don't have to be neutral anymore, do they? No, I'm just saying they probably don't hang out with scythe trees. Oh, but, okay, fine. But the druid might be there because they are an expert in carnivorous plants or something weird like that. That would be okay. Oh, God, even better then. The researcher sends their assistant. Oh, no, that's happening. I mean, that's so either the Baron is sending people or the researcher who the researcher NPC who is sort of the anchor of the first adventure, uh, socially speaking, right? Sure. Is going to have clues that point here. Because I think part of the flavor we were looking for was a little bit of that old fashioned pulp adventure, right? Right. Which means you're going to have those people you travel with who are good at things you're not, who get in the way at the wrong time. So I think maybe what we need is like a little miniature expedition. Yeah. And figure out who would be on this adventure to begin with, who would they encounter along the way in all likelihood. Right. And then that sets up opportunities for assistance, for conflict. Right. Which doesn't entirely help me populate the map, but the conflict part will. Like, the druids could say, hey, I know there's a bunch of haunted trees in there. If you can bring me the wood from the haunted trees, I will reward you. Stuff like that. Sure. You know, just surreptitiously slip you a potion of water breathing and you can't figure out why. Right. Or probably, right, uh, they're going to arrive with somebody who can drive a boat for them, which is great. But that's also a target for, and this is a thing that I was was sitting on for a little while, the Nuklevy. The what? The Nuklevy. Okay, is this better than the space crab? Uh, A Nuklevy is a fairy. It's a fae monster in Pathfinder. Uh-huh. And it is basically uh, a skinned undead centaur slash horseman who rides around in areas that are polluted natural waterways, which this definitely is, uh-huh. and is rude to anybody who comes by. Wait, the actual <laughs> threat is that he's rude? Rude in this case consists of making attacks with a poisonous bastard sword uh, bastard sword, and casting stinking cloud and having a breath weapon okay. that causes so you to get I sick. This, this gets back to what I was saying before. In the conflict that the druids had with the, the, the armies before, what they brought or left here, right? right? Did they create entryways into the, the fair other realms that allowed stuff to seep in? It's called the First World in, in Pathfinder. Druids are strongly aligned with the First World, so maybe... Alternately, okay, mm-hmm. the first world is kind of all up in everybody's business throughout the stolen lands. Sure. Which is just north of here. So this may be a pre-existing problem, but my guess is the Nuklevy is here because when you flood out a whole city, you end up with a polluted waterway. There's just one. 
And if the characters are showing up here at like third or fourth level, that is a ninth level creature. It's a real problem. That's a uh, reminds me, I think, was it FF12 when you walk out of the first city and there's, you know, wolves and some little cactus flower monsters and a T-Rex. Right. Same yeah. same type of thinking. Oh, oh, that's bad. We should leave. <laughs> I'm going to go that way. Or right. you do what some people do, which is, hey, I think I can take. Right. Nuclevies are quite tough. They have opportunity attacks. They have um, the ability to make you permanently tired. They can breathe on you and cause you to bleed to death. Like they're just they're just bad dudes. So I think part of the part of the challenge in this environment then is just getting to the cemetery and all the hazards along the way. Right. So I think there's probably an expedition phase at the start of the adventure, which likely will, you know, you'll be talking through. Okay. Right. The first session of this part of the adventure where you meet all of the NPCs in the expedition and you all go there and okay, it took you so much amount of time and now you can all retrain things. And Is there blah, a camp blah, blah. the expedition had set up before you arrive or do they set up with you when you get there? I think they're either going to have to set up when they get there, or they can meet this druid, who is probably not from, you know, where from where they're coming from, okay. which would be the north end of Taldor. And the druid can be like, oh, good, you've come. I, I had a message from so-and-so. I am prepared to help you explore these ruins because of ancient mistakes made by my precursors. We led in things we shouldn't have. We set the natural order. We, uh, we kind of overdid it here. <laughs> <laughs> we were a little extra. Yeah. So we want to go ahead and clean that up while you guys are doing your thing. <laughs> okay, so shambling mounds or whatever the equivalent are. Shambling then. mounds are totally appropriate. I think they're called something slightly different in Pathfinder, but right basic idea. Uh, squiggling heaps. There's going to be plant monsters. There's going to be undead. There's going to be mushrooms. And we have a substantial cave area, which means that we can start bringing in things from the Underdark, which is not called the Underdark in Pathfinder, but whatever, from the realms below. Are there are there mushroom people? Are they still allowable? I mean, that is a technical option, but it would sort of t it would sort of not work well in the theme here. I think most things that are here are hey elementals or plants and hostile, broadly speaking, and hostile. Yeah, sure. So effectively, what you probably have is a perimeter where anything friendly does not usually cross beyond, and then once you go right. to the... So what I think is that essentially everybody knows about the Nuklevi. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, that's the bastard. Leave him alone. Don't go that way. Do not go into Ruin City, because the mm -hmm. Nuklevi will get you. Right. Okay. Which means inevitably some group will, but that's their fun. Correct. And since those people never come back, and the Nuklevi is still there, continue not going there. Those people were fools. You see, the better thing to do is knowing the Nuklevi is pull the treasure of the fools to find them and bargain with them. That is a realistic, in theory, option. Sure. Nuklevi are listed as doing things like wreaking trails of destruction and being among the cruelest and most monstrous of fae. So probably <laughs> it's not going to go so good. But in theory, you could try that. <laughs> I think... Part of why you have that there is to establish that the skeletons at first seem better as an option. Right. If you meet a bunch of friendly skeletons who are like, yeah, rest in our mortuary temple. It's cool, man. That's an improvement over being hunted by some kind of horrible, you know, blade centaur. I could, I could even see a circumstance where they decide that they either stumble upon the knuckle V, try to bargain, it goes wrong, and then get chased by it all the way into. Right. Yep. Oh. In <laughs> <laughs> Daffy Duck type of situation. Yeah. And I think the knuckle V probably doesn't care overwhelmingly about killing people. What it cares about is preserving this horrible mess that it lives in. 
So this is, I don't know how Pathfinder does creature creation, but one of the tools I found very, I found useful always from the indie games was to have a clear delineation of what the critter can do, but also more, and equally importantly, what it wants out of the thing it's in and from anybody it runs into. Really what this guy wants is for anybody who would actually try to resettle the city to go away. And if, it ha- if they have to go away to the afterlife, that's fine with the Nuckler. Sure. So the best they're going to get out of that is either leave the city alone or convey to it, we're not going there, we're right. going there. I will let you leave. If you come back, I will kill you. It's like the ceiling on negotiating with the Nuckler. <laughs> that is a success. Right. It's actually very pro the cult of Xiphus being in the city because it keeps everybody else out. I don't think they're allies. I think it's just like, yeah, man, you guys do your thing, I'll do mine, and then rides off into the darkness and cuts off somebody's, you know, head. I feel like also somewhere in here is a necromancer who has nothing to do with the Legion. <laughs> just there. It's yeah. like, <laughs> academically speaking, this is a fascinating site. Yeah. Might even have been a hired researcher from before who decided, <laughs> you know what? That kind That's, of funny. If you yeah. get met by a druid and a necromancer... You can already begin to suspect that you might not be on the side of the good guys. <laughs> no. All right. Oh, you're going into the temple, are you? Wonderful. Oh, bring me back the cursed remains of... Are we sure we want to work with this guy? <laughs> I was looking for some delicious knuckle bones, half a scrumptious thyroid, and... Right, because a thing that is true in the Pathfinder setting to a greater extent than some other fa- fantasy settings is that necromancy is super evil. <laughs> you don't say. The goddess of death is not pro-necromancy. In this setting. Well, because you and I were raised on Bold School Forgotten Realms, where the God of Death was a horrible jerk. Uh-huh. And then they replaced him... By a terrible boar. Right. And then they replaced that guy. By a horrible jerk and a terrible boar. Right. Which is not really an improvement to the situation. Or in Dragonlance, where, again, it's a horrible jerk. Did you ever read The Crucible? I don't Which know, maybe. The, the, so the fact that they named their whole trial of the gods... Adventure book adaptation, The Crucible, should have been a flag right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. So the point is, right, there is the official goddess of death who is extremely anti-undead. And then there are a bunch of demigods of various terrible things, such as Xiphus and uh, Ergothoa and the bad guy of Abomination Vaults that are pro-undead. We know they're going to meet the Druid and the Necromancer. Let's talk about the expedition group they're traveling with. We know, is there going to be a, a priest of some kind of phrasma, the kind who's going to want to cleanse the evils and all that usual? I'm not sure that's fun. I don't think it's fun. I'm just, it's the expected thing. So I'm wondering if we do that or not. Well, the reason I don't think that's fun is because that creates an inherent conflict between this Necromancer and that guy. Right, then it's a which party am I choosing? Right, and now, although we can definitely do like a push-pull thing, those have to be really well put together to be fun. Otherwise, you end up in a binary that only one side actually rewards you well on. Right. Oh, we're going to work for the Necromancer because he's rad is probably not the outcome in most playgroups. Are you (laughs) sure? Because I know it's the one in ours. It it would definitely be what you guys would do, but I don't (laughs) think you're representative. (laughs) Okay. I'm aware of this. Uh, You're not in an overwhelming minority. I just don't think you're in the majority. I'm aware. Most people go, oh, well, obviously he's the bad guy. I actually would expect that most people would try to play both sides. Sure. Until you get one Right. You guys would be like, oh, this dude can give me a skeleton arm. I'm hanging out with him. (laughs) (laughs) I think, okay, so talking again about unique qualities, 
I, I'm not familiar with how much they try to lay out what is magical treasure versus magical, you know, changes or things. But I think part of the fun of this adventure should be acquiring things or means or methods you don't usually have a way to. So, yes. All right. And honestly, Pathfinder 2nd Edition puts a pretty big emphasis on making your own magic items, potentially by cashing in the ones that you do find. Right. I'm talking less about, you know, putting a barter economy in place here and more. There are plenty of things that are capable of affecting permanent change in this area. Right. What do you engage with? So what I would say is, okay, Mm -hmm. between the druid and the necromancer and somebody who comes with them, probably the scholar who hired them for the first adventure. Sure. And I think this is a moment where you surpass that guy, maybe not immediately, but by the end, say. Okay, so the the, the punchline goes a druid, a necromancer, necromancer, and a bard. It's probably a bard. I think we were talking about that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got a druid, a necromancer, <laughs> and a bard, and between that you have most axes of crafting except for one very obvious one, covered. So they can do a lot of things for you, provided you're doing favors for them. Right. And maybe, right, maybe— Instead of ending the first adventure on this collateral relative becoming fully corrupted, right? Sure. This expedition is his idea. Mm-hmm. He gets a hold of the cursed hat, and he starts hearing the whispers of his ancestor, who is, you know, a mad general. Right, you start getting more deranged missives and other Obsessed with slaughter, and he's like, you know what? We should go find the rest of this guy's stuff. Bring me the gloves. Which means he's in charge, right? Yes. And so the obvious answer for what happens at the end end of the adventure is that he and the necromancer are like, yeah, screw it. Let's go resurrect our dead relative. I think I think if I recall, we were talking about the mines of step three or four, and one of the possibilities there was that by the time you get out of the mines alive, the party that is, the conflict between the, now I remember the other party that should be involved or want to be at some point in this, the uh, agent of the empress or the queen, whatever her yes. name is. Somebody who's there to make sure things empress. don't. To make sure it stays within the Empire's best interest, because I th- the the fact, like, it's one thing when the guy pays you to go do the expedition, when he puts on the hat and starts getting crazy whispers in his head, and decides to continue running the expedition to the mines and the other places that the rest of the armor is, then things start getting a little weirder. Yeah, so what you definitely need to escalate, not so much how weird things are, but how dangerous things are. Uh, both. I don't think you lose one or the other, Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure that this adventure path goes all the way to level 20. I actually think it probably cuts off somewhere in the teens. I think there are, reaches a point where there are too many branching possibilities to keep it as one path. Well, straight up, all right, leave all of the other considerations aside. I don't think I can write for demigods. I think, and let's, let's take this for a moment, because you and I have talked a lot about scope creep in games and narrative. I can definitely write a story that ends with, and you have defeated the Grave Knight, and now he won't try to take over Taldor. Right. And that is a, huzzah, we have won the day, but not the universe. That is not what is happening at 20th level in any Dungeons & Dragons analog. No. I saw a mod, just to throw this out there, someone had had quote-unquote fixed BG3, so you could get to level 20. And I know, you know, power gaming fantasy is part of why people engage in those kinds of games. Oh, 100%, yeah. But on the other end, I'm going... I understand why they capped it when they did, because eventually your capacity eclipses the challenge. Right. I mean, there is a lot of good stuff in Kingmaker. Yeah. But the most fun I had was definitely taking my mercenary evoker Mm -hmm. to the big battle in Act 5 and just torching people. (laughs) Yeah. I, I would walk into an encounter, and as soon as his initiative hit, we were done. 
Yeah, there, there's a set part of the satisfaction of these games is in the playing of a character. Part of it is in the growth of that character to do things that are awesome. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many directions that by the time you reach the siding with or defeating the Grave Knight, that your party has developed other relationships, dynamics, other interests or opportunities. Right. That it's it's too there's too much that will have emerged as truths of world story and character by that point for a guidebook to continue being the right tool. Right. And also, I think that, nah, I'm going to wear the haunted armor option is very interesting narratively. Right. Because if one party member wears that, none of the others do. That's the choice of whether they all agree with that. That takes you off in a totally different direction than letting the NPC head of this expedition wear it. And I think that's actually the right way to go. Right. You could also end up with a situation where the only party wearing the helmet is the one living. Right. Now you have reached the bad ending. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure it's the bad ending? Because, you know, you've got the hat. All right. Let's think about other things that might be in the ruins. Okay. Because you've you've done a pretty good job kind of penciling in the area around the ruins, which is great because I didn't draw that out all that much. Part of why I did that is because I think knowing what is there helps us understand why it's there and not it further in. So we we know part of the ruins are flooded. We know there are... Lewis and other types of equipment to maneuver water around and other things that are living in the water. Because remember, the ancient Taldans are basically Romans. So there's aqueducts, there's plumbing, there's concrete that has inexplicably and lasted for thousands of years. What this allows is two things here. One, there's the expected path the skeletons want you to take through their death traps. Right. And there's the ways around that involve using the irrigation and water systems, etc. that might be safer or might be worse. One thing I want to try to do in this section of the adventure specifically, uh-huh. based on my understanding of what real-world catacombs are like, is make the PCs feel claustrophobic. Okay. So what you're—the claustrophobia there can come in a few forms. One is obviously limitation of choice, but when it's a narrative game with a collective, you only want to limit choice so much. So then, The major thing I want— Okay, I can actually, I can put, I can point right at it. Okay. I want the above ground part of the ruins they're in to feel much safer than the underground part. Okay, so then part of that involves that the hazards above are easily or more easily escapable. Right. So that's where, for example, the, the evil trees would be. I mean, it's a tree. Right. You're just going to walk away. Now you don't have a problem. As they're traveling below, it's not simply that you cut off sections behind them and say, ha ha, no, you know. No going back that way. It's that this is a living environment, and as you navigate through it, the skeletons are communicating with each other to shift things around. Or and probably not it. just the skeletons. The skeletons yeah. and everything that's willing to work with them. But right. So if if they are, if this is a community dedicated dedicated to idiotic death traps and amusing themselves when you walk through them. I mean, probably not just, but I actually genuinely think this is a primary objective here. So I think there's twofold here. There's the, there's the murderous objectives of we're, you know, we're supposed to protect this place. You have still the dedicated skeletons. And I think. Right. And we've kind of gone off at like a 30 degree angle to protect here at this point, but we're still right. doing it. <laughs> right. So you have the ones that are not going to budge easily. You have the ones that are going to offer board game challenges to you. And then there are places where it looks like you have a choice that is either a trap or not, but you don't know. I think what it what it boils down to is that there need to be permanent consequences to decisions yeah. in the basement. And my point, yeah, I think we're in agreement here that effectively, as the players navigate through, 
the tro- the things that they lose should feel like a consequence of their actions. Right. So here is an example uh-huh. that I think is a good example of a way to make this work. If there is a challenge that the players can't complete and they need one of these NPCs in the expedition to complete it for whatever reason. Okay. And they blow it uh-huh. and that NPC dies. Okay, so this was a question I was going to ask you. Were these expedition NPCs going to be with them in the crypts, in the graveyard? I think the default expectation is no. We have these very competent adventurers. We're going to turn them loose. We're going to hang out over here where the Nuklevi isn't going to murder us and support them. However, there might come, as you said, circumstances where the party doesn't have the expertise to solve them. So, for example, as we have discovered in the Abomination Vaults game, Mm -hmm. languages. Right. I, I kind of feel like, for instance, you encounter the nihilistic bar, the nihilistic skeletons with the board game, and you bring the bard down and go, hey, okay, you guys have fun. I think those skeletons are just like, hey, guys, what's up? You want to play cards? I, I think those skeletons initially appear to be friendly, all right? I feel strongly about this, but they're evil. They're real evil, and they're sneaky. They're real evil, they're real bored, and they're real sneaky. So it's a question of, I think, depending, and here, here's, I think, where their actions change. The the Because if you're looking at the, at the skeletons, you've got three kind of gauges for them. Evil, sneaky, right, and, and bored. And the question is, as the party goes through, what pushes them toward one of those more than the other? Right. I, I feel like the skeletons, not so much whoever their uh, inductor into the cult of Xyphus is, but the skeletons might be willing to change sides. Right. So I think you leave that opportunity where depending on how you interact with the population, whether you play along with their games, whether you break their toys, mm-hmm. you know, it gets them to either lay off the evil, the sneaky, or the board. Right. I, I think it will be a while before they do, but I think that's a realistic possibility. Right. One way this adventure could end, legitimately, is you redeeming the guys guarding this resting place of lots of fallen soldiers. I, I just had an image. You, you know, your expedition's all sitting there on the hill in safe area. Just It's been a day and a half. They're waiting for you to come back. They're going, well, are they dead yet? You know, the usual. And they start hearing the sounds of marching, but it's not boots. It's just bare bones on the soil. And it's the whoever won the duel with the hat. Right. <laughs> followed by the Legion. That's probably a bad ending. <laughs> I know. But I think to, to illustrate your point there of that it should feel like how they choose to go about this affects what happens as they do. I agree. So I think it's distinctly possible that if you do things that are not a very good idea, mm-hmm. right, this definitely ends with the Grave Knight is resurrected. He goes ahead and collects a bunch of skeletons, and now there are problems. And then it becomes an escape with whoever you can save in the expedition. Even right. And now we got to run away. And that's the end of that section. If it's, hey, we got the hat, but uh, it keeps talking to us. Well, we've recovered the armor, but we weren't stupid enough to put it on, Uh right? So then the question is, who in the expedition is? It's the guy who led it here. Right. So he's going to grab it, go bonk, and... Right. And this is sort of a defined outcome, right? That guy is insanely jealous of whoever the legitimate baron is and, you know, yada, yada but has done a good job of playing it down until now. And now he sees his chance. Mm -hmm. So you lay out enough of those threads that this person probably has some squirrely impulses involved in the situation. Right. I think probably the right way for this expedition to start is not for this guy to suggest it, but for the Baron to tell him to do it. Yeah. To get back in good graces. Right. No, just go take care of this thing for me, man. You know? 
I know when we were initially joking at the very beginning, I think playing off of like a Blades in the Dark entrance, it would be thieves breaking into the Baron's house, getting lost in the uh, in the trap maze, and him saying, hey, tell you what, in exchange for your freedom. Right. And I feel like there was a constable. Now I remember there was a constable who would arrest you. This this guy, the guy in the expedition is kind of that level of official. Not right. high up enough, but with enough petty things. It's one of those things where if you had a bastard, you gave him a job. Right. They've got enough. It's a petty person in a petty job with power. Right. And they're just frustrated. Mm -hmm. And so if they get a hold of a bunch of magic armor that seems like it might be valuable, they try it on. Mm -hmm. Whoops. My question is. Now you're a great fight. Would you make the possession immediate or would you make it happen over time? It's pretty clear in that they have written rules for it. Oh, okay, which is immediately you have a mind in your voice saying... Grave Knight's Curse is the name of the rules. Glorious. How does it work? This curse affects anyone who wears a Grave Knight's armor for at least one hour. It is a will-saving throw. Starting from the first failed saving throw, you are doomed and cannot take off the armor. Regardless of whether you succeed or fail it? Failed saving throw. Okay, sorry, right. Starting from the second failed saving throw, you are more doomed because conditions in Pathfinder 2nd Edition are additive, potentially. Sure. So what this says is, regardless of what system you're in, it's not instantaneous. It's they put on the hat, and either you start to notice some funny behaviors or you don't. Right. You have some time to intervene. Mm -hmm. So I think the other thing that needs to happen, right, is that the players need to be separated from this person at the end of the adventure. So the third adventure can happen if you want it to. Sure. So really, the, the big split is who wears the hat at the end of Act 2. Right. If it's the party, you go one way. If it's the petty official, things go another way. Right. Things go another way, and we go to the third adventure. So right. If it's the party, it's, okay, are we going to become servants of the Grave Knight, or how do we depossess our friend? Right. Or are we smarter than that? Yes. And either way, this needs to lead to the mines and crystal caverns. Right, because I think if, if they don't give the official the hat and they don't put it on, they're at an impasse because the hat's supposed to go. To the Baron. And the answer is that somebody else can tell them how to de- how to get rid of the hat for good. And it right. needs them to go to the mines. Which, you know, maybe they've got a... There was a gem, I think. You said there were some kind of gems in the mines that dealt the, with... The idea no. was that they would have to go to a magic gemstone mine. Right. Yes. Because I saw a particularly cool creature and was like, I could build an adventure around that. And that's actually what some of this has been... Weren't they kind of like some hybrid of mole porcupine people that would blind you with... Well, they're, they're blind... Hey... Sure. Who see through crystals. They can, they don't have eyes. They need crystals to see. Right. And that's dumb. But the art for them is amazing. Does that mean a gemstone mine is just a mine full of their eyes, effectively? Yeah, pretty much. So really, the way this works is maybe they're even... Are, are they naturally hostile or only hostile if you do things? So they're organized but not nice guys. So they're not as hostile as the Nuklevi. But right. they're not so good words, dudes. You can negotiate to get access into the mines, but not to take the gems. Correct. They don't want you to take the gems. Which means you could get in there without too much issue, but if someone takes the gems, things go bad. Right. If you try to take their gems, there's going to be a problem, and you may end up a statue. That's basically how this works. <laughs> <laughs> we left Bob behind. Bob's a statue now. Yep. Don't ask any questions. Curiously, if you put the hat on statue Bob, is it still cursing? Probably not. Oh, there we go. Maybe. <laughs> so they have a very weird ability to petrify you where if they hit you, uh-huh. you start turning into stone. Mm-hmm. If they kill you, you are stone forever. 
if they don't kill you, you have to stand in the sun for eight hours to stop being partly stoned. I, I'm now having visions of Bob partly petrified being dragged by the rest of the party out of the mines into the sunlight for long enough to thaw it off, but then he gets possessed because right. he's no longer stoned. Right, and also he couldn't move anyway because the second phase of failing your Dread Knight's curse save means you basically can't move. Really, there's no good choice of putting on the hat. Sooner or later, somebody will get cursed if they recover this guy's armor unless they do something about the armor. Right, which means at some point you should be dropping bits of lore about weight, you know, like the the, this, the, the guillotines and Galt that can right. get rid of souls or something. Right, to, to yeah, right. Yeah. so ultimately, for those of you who didn't listen to the first episode, an answer, which is cool, and so we are embracing, right, is that you destroy the armor using these ridiculous soul-eating <laughs> guillotines that are in the country immediately north of Taldor. Right. Because those are insane, and so I want to use them. Well, the other thing that happens is if you take said armor into Galt, you're also being pursued by the Baron's forces who still want it. And possibly the Cult of Xiphus, and possibly... <laughs> <laughs> You know, like this could this is easily a situation that can escalate, but it seems logical to assume that a way to destroy Grave Knight armor is to crush it in a guillotine. Did the guillotine get rid of the soul or did it just absorb it? It absorbed the soul. It absorbs right? the soul. So potentially you now have an evil guillotine. But they were already pretty evil, so you, you know what the coda here is then, right? You then take said guillotine back to the professor at the beginning. <laughs> Okay, so like I was saying a minute ago, but we got onto a good tangent. Let's talk right. about other things that might be in the ruins. Okay, I I think as you we've sussed out, a lot of the hazards are dependent upon how you negotiate with the main populace, creating hazards. But there should also be the architecture itself that right. is accessible or not, depending upon. And this is a classic RPG thing: what levers they pull. Right. So I think the primary way to complicate situations is there should be, as we are experiencing in Abomination Vaults, right. only so many places to go down. I think also, if there are areas of the underground that are flooded, there's at least one hazardous critter in there. Oh, has to be. I haven't decided what yet, but, but has My to point be. is, it's not friendly to anyone, right. meaning you can sick it on the skeletons and they can sick it on you. Correct. So, I, okay, here's, you remember Takanovo, the bamboo game where the, the, uh, yeah. Part of the minigame there was shuffling the panda around. Yeah. yeah. I think we've got a similar situation here where you're trying to figure out who's got the panda. Except the panda is a, a cursed helmet? No. The, the panda's the analogy breaks down a little. My point is there's a monster in this environment that is, is a hazard to everyone. That hates everybody. Right. And part of the challenge is can you maneuver the hate monster somewhere that isn't you to deal with the skeletons instead? Okay. I mean, I like that. Yeah. Because part of what I would love to do in this case is if the arena is floodable, mm -hmm. I want to throw the the monster with the flood at the boss in the arena. So we need to think of something that's probably amphibious and probably subterranean within the context of Dungeons and Dragons. Right, and is as dangerous to undead as it is to living things. Well, it just doesn't care. Right. I mean, that's, that's the main thing, is it should just not care. It's hungry, it's annoyed, it's stuck. So I think Dwergar will still exist. After the OSR removal, they'll probably be called something else, but I don't think they're going to give them up. Yeah, the, most of the Underdark are the. They've. I know Pathfinder has been trying to varying levels of success to to cast off D and D's uh, problematic depictions of peoples. Well, a and yeah, like it's hard not to see the Dwergar as basically underground Jewish people on some level. 
I don't know. I them and the gnomes both. It's kind of a weird. So many different fantasy races have been affected by stereotypes that are prevalent. I don't really want to go into it in detail here. That's the whole episode. Right. But (laughs) it's hard not to see the Dwergar as being functionally an entire species of Shylocks. Why why do you think they are relevant to the the critter that is under those infinities? Because they are something you could encounter that is not inherently hostile, even if they're bad. You're thinking of the whole population then? Right. Okay. So, in terms of finding a villainous creature, let's say, that sure. is, that just doesn't care, all right, I think we're in the aberration space. Right. Something that is monstrous and has no care for anything else. Right. Which, in the Pathfinder context, okay, means it's probably also, one way or another, descended from Aboleth. And still not a gunpowder is? Right. Uh, the specific thing I have in mind is a chul. Those are kind of weird bipedal crab Those are those people. big, horrible crab monsters, yes. <laughs> I feel like a big, horrible crab monster makes sense in context. <laughs> okay, so importantly to everyone at home, right? Ken has never managed to run a game without crab monsters. That's not true, but I feel that it's, I feel that it's advantageous to run games that have crab monsters. I, I'm bringing this up because I think if you're going to be designing these adventure paths for pathfinder or elsewhere that should be one of your little signifiers right there is a tool every time <laughs> <laughs> i don't even like them particularly as creatures but like the logic is inescapable it doesn't have to be a crab monster in fact i think it's more fun if you go along the everything becomes crab methodology where it's always something crab like there's an apparatus of quailish in this adventure <laughs> why because there is because i can do that yes <laughs> Uh, but okay, so that's one of several possible, you know, things. I think that's great because it's a horrible enemy crab, and that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm pro crab, right? And it pretend. doesn't matter. And while it might poke around in the water, it's perfectly fine hauling out to make a mess of whatever's in its right. way. If you piss it off enough, it's coming for you. Right. So effectively, in the dungeon, you've got the traps, but you also have an angry Indiana Jones boulder rampaging around too. Right. And now we effectively have two persistent threats. The Chul, which is less bad than, than the Nuklevi, but is still very bad. <laughs> because that is a 7th level monster and is going to mess up a 3rd level party in all likelihood. Right, so again, it's avoid or sick it on things or get it in the way of other things. Right. Or, you know, it maybe eats one of the people who's traveling with you. Yes. So here are some other possibilities that exist. Okay. Pokers are weird and kind of fun. Oh, I hate them. Yes, I know. <laughs> I recall that. I, I think I think if dwarves were involved in the city, it was probably back during the construction period. It is reasonable to suppose that dwarves might have helped build that city in a larger fantasy context. It actually doesn't make a lot of sense in Pathfinder's timeline. Okay. I was wondering, would they, importantly, is the Legion, or would the Legion of this nation, as it had been then, been mostly human or humanoid? Yes. Or? It would okay. have been mostly human, specifically. Okay. So anything, th- that's another element of it, too. Depending on what wanders into the cemetery, the skeleton might have interesting reactions to them. Right. Logically, okay, ancient Taldor should have had humans, mm-hmm. halflings, sure, and maybe some gnomes. Okay. We are done now. Nobody else. I- I've never heard of an adventuring party that is humans, halflings, and gnomes. Alone. Right. 
Uh, well, I have, but it's been other than Lord of the Rings, I haven't heard of a lot of them. Right. My my point is the party is going to become is going to seem anomalous. Importantly, how often do adventurers get into the cemetery? I would assume that this is the kind of place where there is no good reason to go because nobody mm-hmm. expects there to be a lot of treasure there. Right. If there is treasure in the city, it's the Nuclevies. If there's treasure anywhere else, it's guarded by annoying undead. Right. The party is coming because they are looking for a specific thing that ought to be there. Okay. So importantly, the reward they're being offered should seem commensurate to the hazards they're going to encounter at first anyway. If not, then the rewards they could attain within the place. And I think this gets into what's in. We've talked about what the druid, the necromancer, and the bard could do. But there's also a crazy cleric of Xiphus and... Right. Other strange dedicated components within here. Right. Other bad news is here. Yeah. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.